<laughs> I love you, DT. You know, Lord willing, Pastor Ken will be back here next Sunday for you. <laughs> yes. So, you what? Couple weeks, couple more weeks off, huh? <laughs> so, well, as Pastor Cody had mentioned this morning, that uh, tomorrow is Patriot Day. Tomorrow is a day that we reflect and remember upon the tragic events of 9-11 back in 2001. And uh, so instead of like trying to memorize a sermon, which is what I try to do, I wrote out my sermon and I want to read you my thoughts and reflections on what had transpired years ago and what role it plays in the American church this morning. But before I do that, I'd love to open up with a word of prayer. God, I Thank for the freedom that we have here in America to go ahead and just proclaim your word to openly gather together to be able to tell people about the love you have for them. And Lord, I pray that you would just uh, use the words that I've been burdened to share this morning to encourage, equip, challenge. And Lord, forgive us as a nation when we've turned so far away from you and the many blessings you've given us since its founding. And Lord, give us a just a zeal to try to get the power, the influence, and the values of your word back into our culture today. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So like Pastor Cody had mentioned already, tomorrow is the 22nd anniversary of 9-11, which is a date that will forever live in infamy. It will have been 22 years since 19 cowardly terrorists murdered almost 3,000 people. According to the 9-11 Memorial Museum, and I quote, terrorists from Al-Qaeda hijacked four commercial airplanes, deliberately crashing two of the planes into the upper floors of the north and the south towers of the World Trade Center complex and a third plane into the Pentagon in Arlington, Virginia. The Twin Towers ultimately collapsed because of the damage sustained from the impacts and the resulting fires. After learning about the other attacks, passengers on the fourth hijacked plane, Flight 93, fought back, and the plane was crashed into an empty field in western Pennsylvania about 20 minutes by air from Washington, D.C. The attacks killed 2,977 people from 93 nations. 2,753 people were killed in New York. 184 people were killed at the Pentagon. And 40 people were killed on Flight 93. You see, September 11th was a day that shocked every single American alive. Those that you remember where you were and, and seeing the things unfold on TV, we were trying to figure out what was going on and why it happened. I remember myself, I was a, a brand new airman, not even in the military for more, for more than a year, and I'm in our customer service section, and obviously no one predicted the first plane, and so we're watching the tower on fire after the first plane struck. And then we see a second plane hit the second tower. And I admit there was an air of confusion. We did not know what was going on. We didn't know if it was an accident or if it was a terrorist attack. Many of us have similar thoughts of confusion, trying to figure out what is happening here on American soil. You see, the 9-11 Memorial Museum goes on to shed light into the reasons behind these cowardly attacks. They say, and I quote, the terrorists did not have the capacity to destroy United States militarily, so they set their sights on symbolic targets instead. 
The Twin Towers are the centerpieces of the World Trade Center symbolize globalization and America's economic power and prosperity. The Pentagon, as headquarters for the Department of the Defense, serves as a symbol of American military power. It is thought that Flight 93 was headed to the Capitol building, the center of American legislative government. Al-Qaeda hoped that by attacking these symbols of American power, they would promote widespread fear throughout the country and severely weaken the United States' standing in the world community, ultimately supporting their political and religious goals in the Middle East and the Muslim world. What we have learned regarding the why is because these cowards couldn't go toe-to-toe with the might, the power, and the resolve of the United States Armed Forces. Therefore, they decided to murder almost 3,000 innocent people, spreading their hate, ideology, and fear. And since boys can't win a war against men, these 19 boys attack symbols of America's dominance, of which symbols can't fight back. These symbols consisted of the Pentagon, the Twin Towers, and the Capitol Building. As stated by the 9-11 Memorial Museum, the Pentagon was seen as the power and the strength of the United States military. The Twin Towers were seen as America's global influence, and Flight 93 on course to destroy the Capitol Building was symbolic of the American values and ideals. You know, immediately following the attacks, firefighters, EMS workers, policemen, and ordinary citizens all worked together to pull people from rubble, provide medical aid, and help with relief efforts as best they could. Only 18 people were able to be saved, pulled from the rubble in New York City. Fires in New York City were burning for 100 days until it was finally quenched. Because of the fires and other pollutants in the air, many citizens of New York City and other locations developed long-lasting residual respiratory issues. The damage of 9-11 consisted of 1.8 million tons of wreckage, in which the last piece of steel was not removed until May of 2002, almost nine months later, these cowardly attacks. All this because a group of boys hated America's power, influence, and values. You see, it was amazing because it didn't take long, but the sales of American flags grew tremendously in the days following. Unprecedented levels. I remember seeing flags on cars, on houses, on stores, on desks. It seemed like there was an American around that didn't have an American flag showing their camaraderie, their commitment, their commitment to patriotism, the nation, and the unification of one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. It was a glorious sight to see. The American people was not divided by race. They weren't divided by creed. They weren't divided by culture. After the tragic attacks of 9-11, the American family was united as one American family. Now, 22 years later, 22 years after the date of 9-11, there are tens of thousands of Americans that have no recollection of this event. Some because they weren't even born yet. Some because they were just too young to remember. Thousands of people have not experienced this tragedy. They either haven't experienced this level of hate for a group to murder such a large people, innocent people, and people who haven't experienced the amount of American unity and resolve to rebuild and to respond to the cowardly attacks. Something happened. Time went on. America forgot. And it seems that what brought us together later would end up tearing us apart. The same patriotism that was seen while America was under duress after 9-11 has now been seen and considered as racist, hateful, and divisive. 
Universities are preventing the American flag to be flown even on Veterans Day. And activists are claiming that to be a patriot is to be a symbol of hatred now and a racist. And while there was an amendment on the books and pushed numerous times since the 90s, which the amendment sought to make it illegal to desecrate and burn the American flag, it failed being pushed and approved on the basis of free speech. However, anybody nowadays burning a pride flag is being charged with a hate crime. I'm not saying it's the right thing to do to burn a pride flag, but what is startling is one is a hate crime and one is free speech. Times have certainly changed in America, and America is losing its power, its influence, and its value system. You see, just as America was attacked on 9-11 by cowardly boys, so too was the church being attacked by a cowardly and similar adversary. Just as the terrorists couldn't fight the American armed forces, neither can Satan stand and fight against Jehovah God. So instead, like these boys, Satan is trying to attack the symbols of God's power influence and values in a spiritual war that's been raging in the Christian church for many, many years. You see, in an attempt to remove the power of the church, churches are being shut down around the world simply for taking stances on political, on stances on positions that align with biblical values. Organizations are being defunded for standing against abortion and standing for traditional marriage. And during the COVID pandemic, churches that held their freedom to worship were either fined or leaders were imprisoned, all the while political leaders forced salons to remain open so they can have their hair done. People inside the church are committing scandals, using power and authority to fulfill lustful desires of sensuality and self-promotion, while others inside the church are using marketing schemes and demonic performances to draw crowds and fill their pocketbooks. Satan is seeking to diminish the American church by dismantling it from the inside out. Meanwhile, the church's influence is being attacked as countless Christians are being murdered, imprisoned, attacked, and ostracized around the world simply for their beliefs. Pro-life organizations are being attacked, vandalized, and interrupted with doing talks on campuses. And just recently, during the city council meeting, I attempted to explain how far America has gone pushing sexual promiscuity on our children and on the medical effects of living a promiscuous life. Did I get any cheers? No. I got booze. I got called a loser. And people like you and me literally were called religious terrorists and religious extremists over there. This is no longer an issue across the pond but it's in our backyard. You see, Paul says in the last days, perilous times will come. In 2 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 5, he says people will become backbiters. People will be lovers of themselves. People will be blasphemers. People will be arrogant. You see, the church's influence in our society is slowly waning in favor of the satanic slogan of do what thou wilt. Furthermore, the value system of our holy scriptures that God breathed into existence through 40 different authors is over a span of about 1,500 years revealing God's love for mankind is simply being burned, mocked, and retranslated to fit a narrative of a godless culture. Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, that in the latter times, people will be deceived into believing doctrines of demons and seducing spirits. These doctrines and spirits have infiltrated the churches by teaching the Bible is not the God's word. It's not infallible. It is not inerrant. Matter of fact, progressive Christianity teaches that the Bible is rather written by fallible men and contradictory men. But wait, there's more. You see, it's being taught that Jesus Christ had two dads while reciting what's known as the Sparkle Creed, which states 
I believe in the non-binary God, whose pronouns are plural. I believe in Jesus Christ, their child, who wore a fabulous tunic and had two dads and saw everyone as sibling child of God. I believe in the rainbow spirit who shatters our image of one white light and refracts it into a rainbow of gorgeous diversity. These teachings, these seducing spirits, these doctrines of devils have infiltrated, not will, not may, not possibly, they have infiltrated the American church and it's being promoted at an unprecedented level. From the growth of progressive Christianity to rewriting the Bible to fit an ungodly society and now being labeled as a religious extremist or terrorist, slowly gone are the days to be able to openly confess the love and truth of God in public without incident. It is now vogue in America to be against the church. It's vogue to be against the Bible, and it is vogue to be against God. The American culture no longer wants God. Instead, they want to be God. They want to seek new power. They want new influence, and they want new values so that they can support unscriptural, unbiblical, and ungodly actions. You see, just as the terrorists attacked American symbols of power, influence, and values— Satan is not just relenting his war on the power of the church, the influence of Christians, and the value systems of the Bible. These attacks have already gotten here in the American church, and they're not going away anytime soon. If anything, they're going to grow substantially more powerfully by the adversary and more vocal by those that are championing his causes. So the natural question is, if we know that Satan is trying to attack our power, influence, and values— what do you and I who hold to the biblical values of traditional marriage, pro-life, that Jesus Christ died for everybody and Jesus Christ is the only way to have a right relationship with God? What do we do in a society like this? What do we do during these days when everything that we do we stand for and we try to talk and teach and profess is being attacked and we're being called terrorists? I believe simply because I'm a Baptist that there's got to be three things that we do. The first thing is we have to be aware that these days are here. We have to understand that in John chapter 10, verse number 10, during Jesus' earthly ministry, Jesus Christ informs the tactics of the adversary. Now, really, the tactic is to steal, kill, and destroy. Well, you see, Jesus Christ's mission is simply to give the people the abundant life, you know, life found in Christ. You see, Satan is crafty, Satan is subtle, and Satan, honestly, Satan is a good strategist and tactician. He's been around for a long time, and he knows to affect his power onto sinful man in his ways. You see, he's able to sway the masses to seek to fulfill the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Rather than seeing the wool pulled over their eyes, they're simply looking through the wool with the perspective of the wool that's over their head. You see, Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 11 and 12, that our battle is not against flesh and blood. We do not fight people and policies. Our battle is against spiritual foes and spiritual darkness that seeks to infiltrate the hearts of man and the minds of man and the influence of the church. People that call you and I religious terrorists and policies that seek to restrict our religious freedoms and convictions, we have to realize they're merely pawns in this spiritual chess game against God. And just as in a chess game, the pawn, the rook, the knight aren't the enemies, but they're being used by the opponent. It's time the church wakes up, realizes the game has already been set and the battle is raging and the war has been going on for centuries. The pawns are in position, the knights are being moved, the rooks are being set up. 
and we're not even in the, in the fight. You see, we have to know that this spiritual battle is alive and this spiritual battle is raging. After that, we need to advance our cause. It's one thing just to know these things, but the second thing is we have to do something about it. We need to go ahead and stand up for what's right and what's biblical and what God would like. Instead of worrying about being considered intolerant or extremist, rather we need to worry about offending our great Savior for not standing up for his word. Taylor just sang a song, Constrained by Christ, and it's because of his love and the love Christ had for you and me and for the entire world to be the propitiation for the entire world. And it's not because we want to serve him, please him, and obey him for our salvation, but it's because of our salvation that we should be constrained to serve him, love him, obey him, and please him. You see, in Acts chapter 5, verse 29, Peter makes a very bold statement in front of his local judicial system. They told him they want him to stop talking about Jesus. And what did Peter say? He said, it's better to obey God than it is to obey man. You see, Peter and the apostles were commanded not to preach the name of Christ, but Jesus Christ commanded him to preach the name of Christ. So they had to decide who are they going to obey, what God's word clearly says or what man is trying to give. You see, if we're trying to be silenced, we have to decide what we're going to do. Are we going to submit to man or are we going to serve Christ? What's interesting, this isn't the first time in the book of Acts that Peter had this discussion. Just a chapter earlier in Acts 4.19, he told the same people, similar people, that they can judge whether it's right or wrong. But as far as Peter and John, they're going to keep doing what they were commanded to do by Jesus Christ. You see, paying attention now, it's funny how the ones that say that Christians are intolerant are oftentimes the ones that are attempting to force their will upon the masses. As opposed to having a healthy discussion, having dialogue, many people feel like volume trumps reason and logic. And therefore, to many, the louder somebody is, the more effective their message becomes. Despite this, you and I must continue to shine a light upon the world. Continue telling people of the love God has for their souls and to grow together as a Christian family in the knowledge and the grace of Jesus Christ. It's a message the world needs to hear. They need to hear the love and the hope that's found in Jesus Christ. This means that when we see an injustice being done, we should seek to step up and defend the helpless. If someone is attacking Christian beliefs rather than burying our head in the sand and instead of trying to ignore what we're hearing, we should with grace and with love attempt to have a discussion with that individual to try to gain them for Christ. You see, if a policy is being pushed that is very clearly contrary to our religious beliefs or convictions, we should seek to oppose the policy in accordance with our constitutional freedoms that we do still have. You see, living in a dark culture today, there is a lot of opportunity to advance the cause of Christ. A long time ago, I had preached a message that's titled, Opportunity and Injustice. We have such a great opportunity to affect this culture for Christ in the midst of our persecution. Too many times we look at our persecution and we just, we're too worried about the temporal aspect of it as opposed to trying to gain souls and pulling people from the fire. You see, God may burden you to stand up for this cause, stand up for that cause, and if that's the case, I, I implore you to follow the Lord's prompting. But if not led by the Lord, simply encourage and support and pray for those that have been burdened to stand up for this policy or that policy. 
You see, if our mission is to spread the gospel of Christ and to reveal the love of God to the world through truth and by gracious words and actions, it doesn't happen by osmosis. You and I must be active in loving, serving, encouraging, telling, and reaching others in a dark world. You see, not only do we have to know about this, not only do we have to advance this cause, but thirdly, we have to maintain our resolve. We have to remain committed to what's going on. You see, a battle is simply one fight in a larger campaign. And as such, we have to consider the battle that's directly, immediately in front of us, locally and personally, and remain committed to standing up for the cause of Christ, the promises and truths and values of God's Word. In Luke chapter 14, verses 26 through 28, Jesus tells the multitudes that if anyone wants to be his disciple, in other words, if anybody wants to learn from him, if anyone wants to go ahead and follow him, if anybody wants to stand up for his beliefs and spread his teachings, then he must consider the cost it will take to represent him. While becoming a Christian is simple, it's free. It's believing, Christ, it's believing that Jesus Christ died in your stead, that he rose again, and that by believing in his resurrection, you can have eternal life. Belief, salvation is simple. Discipleship is hard. We have to be willing to count the cost. You see, Jesus says to grow and to represent him well, we have to choose him. We have to choose his value system over everything else. We must choose to stand for biblical values no matter the cost. This is not something to take lightly. Many Christians who have been disciples of Christ and seek to stand up and champion his values have been imprisoned, have been highly persecuted, attacked, murdered, and labeled as religious terrorists. You see, Hebrews 11:35 through 39 tells the story of many Christians who chose the path of discipleship and remained firm in their resolve. These people were tortured, placed on trial, beaten, imprisoned, stoned, cut in half, destitute, and homeless. If you want to get in the fight, you have got to count the cost. There will be a cost to stand up to a godless society today on the truth of God's word. But look at what scripture says in verses 38 and 39. Look at what God says about those that maintain their resolve. The world wasn't worthy to have them. The world wasn't worthy to have them and they obtained a good report. I would much rather have the, the approval of God than the approval of man. And regardless of what happened to these people in Hebrews chapter 11 and, and the suffering and the persecution they had, it was merely but temporal. Because now they're living in eternity and an abundant life in heaven with Jesus Christ being able to look back on the fact that in one day in time, they stood and they remained committed and they were resolved in championing the values of God's word. You see, remaining committed to the cause of Christ and the kingdom of God will bring persecution. You will be called a religious extremist. You may lose a job. You may lose a friendship. Worse, you may lose your life. But again, to have the approval of God and the reward that follows with it once in glory, I promise you, it's going to be all worth it. It's going to be all worth it. You see, family, the struggle is real. The battle is real. Our convictions are still being challenged, and our resolve is constantly being tested. 
And I implore every single Christian that's hearing this message that names the name of Christ as their Savior to realize the battle that we are in. We need to advance our cause, remain committed to Christ, and remain committed to his teachings. You see, the cowardly events of 9-11 couldn't remove America from the world stage. Sure, 9-11 may have temporarily hindered her power, may have even temporarily halted her influence, but the days and months that followed, she was stronger than ever before. America was rallied in unity and patriotism, fighting the battle before. Yes, the years following, she's been infiltrated by bad ideology, the infight of people, division and strife, but America's still around. And America's still here because many remember where we came from. Many never forgot those tragic days 22 years ago. And though the number seems small, there are still many patriots who are committed to the ideals, values, and principles this great country was founded upon. And unless every patriot is silent, there is always going to be hope to make America godly again. In a similar vein, as long as there are Christians who accept the high cost of discipleship, remained resolved in their commitment to champion further God's kingdom, there will always be hope to make an impact in the dark culture before us. You see, this can be one of the shortest messages I've given, but I want to close with this illustration. Annually in New York City, there's what's known as the Tribute of Lights. It's held on ground zero where two lights are lit every single year from dusk to dawn on September 11th as an iconic symbol which honors those that were killed and celebrates the unbreakable spirit of 9-11. The 9-11 Memorial Museum says that the light beams reach up four miles into the sky and are comprised of 88 7,000-watt xenon light bulbs positioned in two 48-foot squares, echoing the shape and the orientation of the Twin Towers. Matter of fact, this illumination can be seen from a 60-mile radius around lower Manhattan. 60 miles. The lights are a visible reminder in the darkness that no matter the trials, attacks, or enemy, the American resolve will remain steady and the nation remains a beacon of light to a dark world. Speaking of light, John wrote in his gospel in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. You see, Jesus Christ is life. Jesus Christ is the light of the world. And no amount of darkness can overcome his presence. No godless society, no trials or religious persecution, not even Satan himself can overcome the light of Christ. And if there is one thing our dark culture here in America needs, it's the life found in Jesus Christ. But if you and I remain silent and apathetic and passive and a pacifist in this world, they will never see the light. You see, when it seems that the church has lost its power, when it seems that the church has lost its influence on the culture, or when it seems that the church is losing its values in a godless society, as long as we're determined to shine the light of Christ and tell people about the life found in Christ... Satan will not overcome, no matter how dark it gets. And we have got to always remember 
that light shines brightest in the darkest hour. Let us pray. God, I thank you for this morning and just this brief, but this message you've burdened me with this morning as we reflect back on the days of 9-11. And God, such a tragedy that we saw almost 3,000 lives were taken innocently by cowardly acts of terrorism. And Lord, those that sought to harm us sought to harm our power, influence, and our values. And just as many years later in America, we've forgotten what we stood for, where we've came from, and how you've got us here. So too, the American church is forgetting what you've done for us, how you've blessed us. And so, Lord, I pray that with this message and with the Spirit's encouragement, I pray, God, that you would just burden us, you would give us a zeal to stand up for the things of your word, to be able to be a light in the midst of a dark community, in the midst of a dark culture. Not so that they could see us holding the light, but that they could see the light of Christ and find the life that is found within him. So I pray that you would just burden us, give us a zeal, give us a passion, give us wisdom to know what to do and where to stand. We thank you and we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.